Welcome to a new season of The Balance Sheet, where you can rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. I'm your host, Conrad Chua. Before we get started, if you're new to the show, you can put your questions in the comments field, whether you're watching us on LinkedIn or YouTube. As always, we can start by letting us know where in the world you're watching this from today. For this new season, we're going to do a deeper dive into some of the most important issues. One of this is sustainability. It's a key challenge for business, society, and the planet. And it's an area that we at the business school are paying huge attention to. One critical area, of course, in reducing carbon emissions is in transport. Developed nations are banking on electric vehicles, aka EVs, and this has brought about tremendous change in the auto industry. Supply chains are being reconfigured. China could be the global leader in this area, supplanting, let's say, Germany. Now, today's guest will tell us if EVs is that silver bullet. She has a career history of being ahead of the curve. She worked in IBM for their AI division years before MBAs discovered ChatGPT was this cheat code for their final project. And the work she's doing now as Circular Cars Initiative Specialist at the World Economic Forum, it's just as exciting as AI, but I think it's going to be much, much more impactful. So welcome, Natalia Jova. Hi, Conrad. Very pleased to be here. Mm. So, Natalia, we'll start off by this question, with this question. Is the answer to global transportation emissions simply replacing every, electri- every uh, internal combustion engine with an electric vehicle? Yeah, absolutely. I think this is a very popular question these days. And, you know, obviously a lot of effort has gone into uh, decarbonizing the industry through the replacement of the fleet. Um, I would say that, you know, this is not um, surprising in a way, since at the moment, approximately 75% of emissions attributed to mobility industry are, are from the tailpipe emissions. And so that's huge focus on uh, replacement of ICEs with EVs uh, makes perfect sense. However, there are some different implications when it comes to that replacement. So when we think of what the EV batteries, what what specific implications are that the EV batteries uh, bring to this equation, and that includes also the embedded emissions. So we're not just looking at the tailpipe emissions, but what what other um, emissions are out there when it comes to uh, the production, the, um, you know, kind of collection at end of life, recycling, etc. of of the EV batteries. And another point I was going to make around this as well. So um, the question is, is the replacement of the whole fleet going to resolve the issue? Uh, One statistic I have recently come across as is um, at the moment what is needed to, to make that kind of shift entirely for the fleet is we would need 3 billion tons of lithium. As we stand today, uh, in order to extract um, that lithium and um, essentially be able to produce those batteries to replace that fleet, it would take us 700 years to do so. As we know, we don't have that much time uh, to tackle the decarbonization of the industry. And so we need to look to other means of addressing the decarbonization issues and um, meeting 
the net zero goals as set out by the Paris Agreement. So I would say much more work ahead of us and not just when it comes to the replacement of ICEs with EVs. Great. So that's just staggering the amount of uh, new materials that we are that we need in an EV. So you work in the World Economic Forum on circular cars. Can you tell us a bit about how using this circular approach or circular economy approach could help us reduce those embedded emissions in EVs? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let me just quickly maybe start by introducing the Circular Cars Initiative, how it came to be and what is it that we do. And so uh, it came to be back in 2020 during the annual meeting in Davos, where a group of industry uh, and value chain players got together and discussed the issues at hand of how the industry can be decarbonized. Also, they have recognized the importance of the electrification. They have realized that it's not something that is going to get us all the way there and realized that it's the uh, embedded emissions that is one of the aspects that needs to be um tackled us as part of the efforts to the decarbonization of the industry. Uh, at the moment, actually, when it comes to the embedded emissions uh, in, in the supply chain for, for EVs, actually 50% of them come from the EV batteries themselves. And so what are the solutions that we can use in order to minimize those uh, emissions? Because when you think of it, the technology doesn't limit the emissions at the moment. It just displaces them and puts them in a different point of the value chain. Um, and so what we are doing at the moment is working both with the industry players on the industry solutions kind of coming together, how, how that collaboration can help us solve those issues across the whole value chain, but then also including the policymakers in the discussion and how um, the regulation, the legislation in different parts of the world can be more harmonized and how can we build those policy bridges to enable those global value chain players to really uh, invest in scalable solutions to minimize those emissions, not just the tailpipe ones, but actually across the entire value chain. So at the moment, when mm -hmm. I mean for last couple decades, right? When you buy a car, you I don't know, it's reached its end of life, or you just don't like it anymore. You want to upgrade, you just send it off, sell it to someone, or send it to scrap, and you wash your hands off it. What would this end of life, you know, what would uh, that part of the process once I got rid of the car as a consumer as a consumer mm -hmm. what would that look like if we wanted to reuse and recycle more of the pro of, of the components in an ev yeah absolutely so um i would start off first with highlighting that i see it i, I see the transition and kind of resolving that end of life uh, vehicle management issue as an opportunity opportunity to be to do better in comparison to what has been done historically and at the moment with the ICEs. Uh, and so, um, first of all, highlighting that when it comes to the EVs, uh, EV batteries production and generally EVs, um, this is a much more resource intensive process. So the current estimate by the International Energy um, Agency is that it takes approximately six times as many minerals to produce an EV than historically with the IC. And so we are moving from that kind of fuel intensive um, system to, to a resource mineral intensive system. And it really you know, poses some challenges, but it also is an opportunity which uh, I think we need to um, highlight in a way that 
since those critical minerals are very valuable and, you know, um, when it comes to the ownership, uh, very much uh, players across the value chain would like to retain it. It's our opportunity to look at how we can design better systems, better business models where, uh, you know, the responsibility for, for uh, taking uh, care of the battery across the life cycle, including the end of life. Um, it's it's not just by regulation placed, for, for instance, with the producer, but, you know, there is, their, there is that economic incentive to actually retain the ownership of that asset. Uh, and so I think it actually uh, creates that opportunity for us to really replace the current system with something better, where uh, that responsibility is not only kind of imposed, uh, but actually it's uh, economically incentivized for, for the battery producers, for the OEMs, uh, etc. Mm. Natalia, you mentioned these critical minerals that go into an EV mm -hmm. or the battery. Can you tell us what are some of these critical minerals and where are they found at the, or mined at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. It's another uh, big complexity when it comes to the EV transition, since uh, those critical minerals, so to name a few, obviously we're looking at lithium, we're looking at cobalt, copper, etc. And with those, there are highly um, kind of condensed in certain areas of the world. Um, and so, for instance, for cobalt, majority of those resources are based in DRC. For lithium, historically, the biggest production producer would have been uh, Australia. But now we're looking at Chile, Argentina and Bolivia uh, actually owning majority of that resource. And, and so uh, it introduces that additional complexity with uh, kind of volatile regions in the world as well uh, to um, ensure that those supply chains remain resilient and um, um, also the ethical standards and human rights standards are uh, kept uh, to a standard when it comes to both extraction, uh, but then um, moving those materials, those resources through the value chain. Mm. We actually have uh, Mike, who is from DRC, and yes, obviously that's one of the big cobalt uh, producers in the world at the moment. Uh, we'll talk, Mike. We'll, we'll talk more later on about the effects of EV production, the circular economy, especially with as it regards to develop developing countries, right? Because uh, that, as Natalia, you mentioned, there are a lot of environmental implications through mining. Uh, I think, Natalia, you could do a few questions at the moment. The first right. one um, from Caroline, which is, how are we going to get EVs to become more popular? Uh, the take-up, mm -hmm. I think Caroline's based in the US, the, the take-up seems pretty gradual, but slowly more car companies are moving towards EVs. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to the take up of the EVs, I would say it very much depends on the region of the world we're talking about. So when it comes to the US, I would say uh, on average, the take up has been relatively slow. Uh, this is, um, I would say, due to low population density across uh, the country. There are high adoption uh, city clusters. Um, but when it comes to the EVs, obviously, one of the big concerns there might be around, uh, you know, how long will the battery last? 
how what's the availability of the charging stations uh, and also even within the cities you know uh, when it comes to uh, standalone buildings versus apartment blocks etc uh, how do we um, ensure the access to the EV charging um, and in other regions of the world so for instance in Asia I would say we have seen a higher take-up that one was uh, actually driven by uh, the two-wheelers as well uh, so, yeah, very much dependent on on, uh, on the region and what's the art of the possible with, with both the charging, but then also with the affordability, uh, since uh, when it comes to the EV batteries, uh, you know, obviously the cost is uh, higher uh, than currently with the ICs. Um, in fact, it is the battery itself that is driving up that cost. So the battery at the moment constitutes approximately from 30 to 50, uh, 57% of the EV price. So uh, should we be making the EV battery itself more affordable, we might be able to um, increase that take up um, across uh, the board. Great. We have like a couple of a question mm -hmm. and a comment actually about something that's may well, someone hopes would replace EVs, which is hydrogen. So Hadik asks, what about building a hydrogen centric network? Uh, would that get us closer to sustainability, a hydrogen fuel cell instead of EVs, which have, as you've been mentioning, quite a lot of issues uh, embedded in them? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So uh, just like EVs, I would say that uh, with hydrogen, it also comes with its own set of challenges as well as opportunities. So again, I would refer back to, you know, looking at particular regions of the world and then also coming back to the embedded emissions and uh, when it comes to the production, because one of the aspects that people don't tend to consider is, uh, you know, uh, how how has it been produced in a way what kind of energy has been used to uh, to put it in place uh what have been implications of the uh place where this, uh, the selection of the place that has been selected for the production of it etc so there isn't a simple response of you know yes this technology is going to do better than the other uh, i think each comes with its own set of challenges and then we should pick and choose depending on uh the local art of the possible mm. I think Andrew uh, had an answer which, well, his, his view is hydrogen is not the answer for domestic car use, but it may have a role in freight transport. Uh, mm -hmm. I think largely because the, the batteries that are needed for, uh, if you had to transport freight for long distances would really be cost prohibitive. Do you think that's the case for that hydrogen? We might see EVs mm -hmm. for domestic car use and hydrogen for freight. Yeah, and I, I would say that to some extent, I definitely do do agree. Uh, I think when it comes to the EV battery, so I've already mentioned that, you know, when it comes to the production of an EV, it's approximately six times as many minerals. Uh, even when you think of larger vehicles such as SUVs, it's up to three times as much as six times and so on. So so uh, when it comes to the larger vehicles, for sure, uh there, there is the question of you know which which battery cell would actually be uh, more sustainable uh, and 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 better for the environment for sure. And so uh, there might be a division of you know which technology might uh, make most sense for a take up in a particular uh, vehicle category. Hmm. And we have s someone on LinkedIn asking, what mm -hmm. are, as we move towards EVs, would mm -hmm. is there also a shift towards nearshoring? rather than these very long, complex supply chains that we have currently. Would this 
also reduce emissions in the EV supply chain? Yeah, absolutely. So, in fact, we've done some research around um, even, you know, at the kind of end of life battery recycling, right? So, a majority of the cost at the moment comes from the transportation of it. Uh, and so, um, for sure, there has been some incentives already placed um, in different regions of the world to ensure that nearshoring is going to help us tackle those embedded emissions, which do include the transportation emissions. Uh, and so, for instance, when it comes to IRA, uh, there has been an incentive for for the kind of uh, more nearshore uh, produced uh, batteries uh, when it comes to the tax incentives offered. So, uh, for sure, there, there is that trend there already, and it would help tackle at least part of the embedded emissions when it comes to uh, the value chains. You mentioned the IRA, which is the Inflation mm -hmm. Reduction Act in the US. The EU has other... Uh, laws to try to encourage uh, a more sustainable uh, production of EVs as well. Mm -hmm. And of course, the big new entrant into all this is China, who has used the transition to EVs to leapfrog a lot of the more established auto manufacturers. Do you feel that, I mean, what's, I, I think from China's point of view, a lot of these IRA, the EU law, it would almost seem like it's erecting protectionist trade barriers, uh, just as they're about to gain a foothold on the global stage. Do you agree with that? And what's your view on how all these regulations could or should be, or should they be more harmonized? Yeah, absolutely. One of the major work streams uh, the uh, Circular Cars Initiative is currently focusing on is our um, global uh, policy landscape harmonization work. Uh, it's, you know, it, it goes beyond the EV batteries. So at the moment, we've published the first two briefing papers specifically on EV batteries recycling, as well as the EV battery digital product passports. Uh, but then we've got more coming around critical minerals, steel, scope-free emissions, etc. Uh, and I would say there is definitely an argument to be made for, for the global harmonization of uh, those policies, specifically around standardization of the definitions, uh, black mass composition, um, also looking at, you know, um, consolidated comprehensive approach to the digital uh, battery passports and how do we ensure that, you know, there is a consistent way of um, collecting, verifying, calculating the data and really being able to assess that sustainability performance of a battery. Uh, so for sure, um, I would say there, there's definitely a need uh, for um, aiding and, and allowing the global value chain players to do better when it comes to circularity and sustainability of the EV batteries by using the policies to, to really enable them to, to address those needs. Hmm. And rather than selecting, you know, in, in some cases, contradictory guidance given or, or you know, different standards, definitions used, it, it just makes it a lot more complicated. And should we have a more, um, you know, global approach, global standards and definitions, that would for sure make it easier for the value chain players. You mentioned this digital passport for batteries. I mean, yeah. what, what is that and what's the advantage of having this digital passport? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the digital passport, so, you know, you can have digital product passport for, for many different things. Uh, at the moment, we're focusing on the EV battery one. And so for that one, it looks at what are the materials that have been used in the production of the battery? Where did they come from? Uh, what are the parameters of the battery? What's its sustainability performance, etc.? And, you know, at the moment, there are very different standards in different regions of the world. So uh, the EU has introduced its digital battery passport, right? Uh, there is some work that's being done in China around the traceability as well with the introduction of a different digital product passport. Um, and I would say there is, you know, um, a big trend as well for, for global initiatives to, to work on that harmonization. So one I would definitely call out and one definitely worth checking out is Global Battery Alliance, which is doing a lot of work and at looking at that kind of harmonization when it comes to those digital product passports and looking at how we can standardize the definitions, the parameters, how can we make it comparable and consistent to really know, uh, you know, which, which EV battery is um, of, of better sustainability performance and ethical performance than uh, the other. Mm. And I think someone's posted a, a link to the global battery, globalbattery.org. So thank you so much, uh, Alan. There's a question about, uh, I mean, we talk a lot, this whole live stream is about EVs, mm -hmm. but Debalsis is asking, so what's going to happen to all the petrol or diesel powered vehicles? What's going, who's going to, what's going to happen to them? Are we going to recycle? Are we going to scrap them? Yeah, a uh, very good question. So at the moment, I would say, you know, there is a big trench uh, when it comes to exporting them to the developing nations, uh, which poses an issue on its own uh, at the moment that even without the EV transition uh, complexity added to it, since a lot of those vehicles do not meet, um, you know, standard safety and, and um, environmental uh, standards, um, you know, in other regions of the world and, and uh, in a way contribute to what we call a carbon leakage. So since, you know, uh, technically the car has been exported away from, from one of the regions, it, it's no longer producing the carbon here, but then, uh, you know, it, it's still out there and still, still doing that elsewhere. And so that carbon leakage occurs. And uh, with, uh, you know, the solutions for that at the moment, uh, I would say, again, uh, I, I don't have a perfect answer of, you know, who should that be, who should take up that responsibility and how can it be done? I would say uh, what plays a big role at the moment and should be done even more is the closer collaboration between the exporting and importing nations, which I know UNEP has been doing a lot of work on, uh, to, to really... Uh, not only set those standards in place for the experts or, or whether you know the car should be simply dismantled and recycled to to the best of of um of the ability uh but then also uh how do we uh, how do we actually enact those standards how do we ensure that those standards are being followed uh so as i mentioned unep has been doing some work around it but for sure uh more work needs to be done in the coming years mm. And of course, there's a very strong ethical issue here because the developed nations are using EVs to uh, well, reduce emissions, reduce particulate emissions from cars. But these old cars that wouldn't be probably not even legal to drive anymore in developed nations are being exported to Africa, where uh, large places like Africa, where it's the minerals, they're producing the minerals that power the EVs, isn't it? So there is this moral and ethical standpoint of how can we uh, uh, help the developing countries 
cleaner, mm-hmm. have a much more sustainable transportation uh, solution as well. Yeah, absolutely. And there is already, you know, kind of work being done. So as I mentioned, uh, uh, you know, closer collaboration of the exporting and importing countries. There are some countries in Africa, for instance, that have completely banned the imports of used vehicles. Uh, but when it comes to the EV transition and kind of, you know, the minerals, I would say, uh, yes, absolutely. For instance, you know, a lot of cobalt, uh, majority of cobalt comes from um, a DRC, comes from Africa. And uh, how, how do we actually ensure uh, that the local economies are, are benefiting and the local communities are benefiting from, from having those resources, extracting them rather than uh, just, you know, losing the ownership straight away to the developing nations and uh, not really benefiting from the tremendous mineral resources that they've got in place. So there is for sure a lot to be done around so-called um, homegrown solutions, right? So how can we ensure uh, that, you know, it is not just extraction and then export that happens. How can we, for instance, um, increase the ability for, for refining those resources and retaining part of that economic incentive in those uh, exporting nations as well? And aside from that, obviously, the huge environmental um, biodiversity um, and, and human rights implications that come with the instru- uh, extraction, how do we um, how do we ensure that that real standards are being followed without, uh, you know, impacting uh, the local communities in a way that they are impacted today and also their local biodiversity? Mm. I think you you touch on the first question that Edam has, which was mm-hmm. how can various stakeholders, including governments, manufacturers, collaborate to develop and implement stringent standards for ethical mining? Uh, mm-hmm. Did you have anything else you wanted to add on this uh, issue of standards for mining? Yeah, uh, I think for standards for mining, uh, I would add better auditing, uh, more focus on, uh, you know, how, how do we avoid the issues when it comes to the artisanal mining operations and, and generally how do we uh, keep closer watch on, on ensuring that the standards are being followed. Uh, so um, one, um, actually, um, I've come across at a conference just last week, uh, an author, um, Siddharth Kara, the author of Cobalt Red. Uh, so I'll definitely recommend uh, that book in terms of, uh, you know, learning a little bit more uh, about uh, not just setting those standards, but actually how does it look like on the ground and uh, how what more can be done. Uh, truly ensure uh, we are addressing those environmental biodiversity and local communities implications. Hmm. And Edam's second question was, mm-hmm. what uh, what's innovation is happening in the creation of alternative battery technologies that are less reliant on scarce resources? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, just in the conversation we were having before uh, before uh, the podcast started, Conrad, I've mentioned, for instance, the company called Redwood Materials based out of the US. Uh, so I would say... Natalia, what's, can you, could you repeat that company again? Uh, Redwood Materials ba- based in the uh-huh. US. So what they're looking at at the moment is, you know, new creative technologies on how to increase the um, rate of resource extraction from, from you know, the batteries being recycled, etc. And so, uh, you know, I think what they're looking at is being able to extract enough lithium to produce 1 million batteries by 2025, um, etc. And so it, it's looking at technology, technologies that are going to allow us to 
produce more with less uh, and, and then also uh, increase that kind of recycled content uh, in, in, the battery, in the new batteries produced. Um, and then one other aspect that we haven't really covered yet, I would say that um, you know, there, there shouldn't be, and there isn't at the moment as well, because there are other players looking at different solutions, we shouldn't just focus purely on recyclability, right? So recy- uh, recycling is a kind of last step in the process. You know, how can we use those batteries um, in, in, other, in other ways? So, so, you know, can we use them as stationary um, um, storage, uh, energy storage? Can we use them as mobile energy storage? What are the other business case, business models where, where we can really uh, utilize them as still valuable resources? Can we reuse them in other EVs, etc.? Um, and then another aspect I would mention is the kind of um, sufficiency philosophy. So again, uh, I think we've already mentioned the kind of size of the vehicles and so on. So uh, you know, a smaller vehicle, smaller battery, less resources required. So it's also on the consumer demand and consumer trend sides. Uh, what can what can be done uh, to really, uh, yeah, uh, follow that sufficiency philosophy? Let's go with that. Hmm. Gora Kinder asks, um, it seems like the critical bottleneck in the supply chain is really the minerals, right, for mm-hmm. the batteries. So why hasn't EV makers done vertical integration? So by mining, by a mining company or mining yeah. licenses? So I would say that the vertical integration is actually one of the major trends. So uh, there, there is a lot of work being done by the battery producers, refineries and so on to ensure that they're owning their supply chain. So, so that vertical integration for sure is a trend. Uh, another trend I would say in a way, vertical integration-wise, is is also setting up a lot of joint ventures. So you know, be it mining companies with battery producers, battery producers with the OEMs, etc., looking at kind of consolidating that supply chain and making it more resilient for themselves. So, uh, yeah, there is definitely that trend already. Mm. So you mentioned that that OEMs are partnering with uh, the mining companies. Is that is that what you're saying, or forming some kind of partnerships? Yeah, so there's been a lot recently, you know, the giga battery factories, you know, recycling sites, etc. being set up, which are usually, you know, in collaboration with others. So, so there's been a few of them set up in Europe, a few in the US. Uh, they're not, you know, purely OEM action. There is usually some joint venture there between OEM and battery producer, etc. And also, uh, you know, with, with, with the mining companies themselves as well, looking at uh, how, um, how to ensure that that resiliency of the supply chain. Mm. And I guess it's not just the, when you say mining, is it just the process of getting the mineral out of the ground, but there's also the refining process, isn't it? Yeah. And that can really be one area where OEMs partner, because if they are doing the recycling of a material, putting it and, and working with the refiners. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot happening in the space already with with different players joining forces to really uh, use, you know, the kind of knowledge already existing and how to do that. Uh, so I think one of the more recent ones, there was Glencore setting up one of those. There was Volkswagen. So so a few of them popping up across mm-hmm. Europe as well as the US. And obviously in China, you know, I'm ahead of the curve when it comes to uh, setting those up as well. Related to this, this discussion, Nick asks, what are the biggest risks facing the global supply chain of EV batteries today? 
biggest risks facing the global supply chain of EV batteries today? Uh, right. So I would say, well, first of all, from the critical minerals perspective, right? So we have mentioned that, you know, uh, there uh, not abundant. Uh, they, they are, you know, very much um, available in, in just a few places around the world. So very much depending on, on uh, some of those exporters um, and, uh, you know, their ability to, to continue providing those. Um, then I would say, um, yeah, I, I think it's mostly mostly around that at the moment, and and the kind of standards around it as well being in, introduced, um, and ability to collaborate internationally on on that too. Hmm. Um, I think there's a lots of questions sort of coming in, but sure. I think this is another one where someone from LinkedIn asked. What are the challenges with the way uh, greenhouse gases emissions are calculated for the production of electric vehicles at the moment? Okay, yeah, sure, absolutely. So, uh, well, the first thing that pops into my head when I think of them, you know, kind of calculating the um, emissions for, for the production specifically is, um, I would say, what's what energy has been used in in the production and what were the implications not just from the emissions perspective but then also local biodiversity and pollution um when it comes to the production of those batteries so i think a lot that we talk about even i you know in this talk have referred to embedded emissions emissions tailpipe emissions and so on but but one of the topics that that we're not covering enough when it comes to the production process specifically is the implications for for local biodiversity deforestation uh you know um pollution toxicity etc um and Another aspect of it, so post-production too, I would say, you know, we've got this EV batteries, but how do we how do we power them? What's the energy being used in, in making them going? So so I would say it's a much more complex question of, uh, you know, um, this not being the BON end all. It's so much more that goes into it in terms of what energy is being used. Hmm. We were talking before we went live that uh, Apple had an Apple event this week and they mm -hmm. launched uh, what they call a carbon, what they claim to be a carbon neutral watch, right? Mm -hmm. So Joe asks, will we ever get completely away from all the petroleum-based products, plastics, you know, and obviously, uh, all the embedded emissions in cars? Will we ever see a carbon neutral car? I, I really wish I could say yes, absolutely. I think at the moment, uh, you know, um, uh, maybe a car potentially, <laughs> but when it comes to being able to do this at scale, unfortunately, the numbers are, I would say, are not looking that great and there's so much more that needs to be done. Uh, in fact, there's been, um, you know, a statistic I have come across that uh, for us to reach the Paris Agreement, set out uh, the goal set out by the Paris Agreement, uh, to decarbonize the automotive industry would need to have just zero emission car sales by uh, 2032. Um, and at the moment, you know, any projections that we've got, this is just not 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 really showing that. So um, I would say 
uh, a lot more that can be done. And at the moment, I, I will refrain from saying that, you know, this is something that we can definitely accomplish right now. Hmm. So, Natalia, you work in the Circular Cars Initiative, but I believe you don't own a car. Is that right? Yeah, I, I do not own a car. I, I'm actually, you know, um, uh, one of the uh, lucky people that live in a place with, with very good public transportation systems and then also beautiful surroundings. So, so basically just walking or cycling most of the time that I can, which I know that not everybody is as privileged. But yes, in my case, uh, owning a car just doesn't really make sense. So someone on LinkedIn asks, how can cities encourage the use of public transport systems to reduce the environmental footprint further, even as the shift towards private EV ownership grows? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is my favorite aspect when it comes to circularity um, and and the automotive industry and and generally transport and, and mobility needs. So I would say that, you know, we don't really have car needs. We've got mobility needs. And if we can address them in any other way than just each of us owning a car. Uh, this is probably the way forward since, you know, um, you know, it's again, the sufficiency philosophy and what is it actually needed to address our needs. And so investing more and re- developing more reliable, efficient, effective public transportation systems is for sure one of the ways to go, which I do appreciate very much depends on the region of the world and, and the kind of population density, et cetera, of how can this be addressed and you know, different regions of the world will have different needs for that mobility. Um, I would say uh, when it comes to cities, uh, there's a lot to be said about uh, designing them with, with the kind of mobility needs in mind and how they can be addressed by other means than uh, purely car ownership. And so, uh, you know, uh, increasing that reliability, uh, accessibility of different public transportation modes, but then also looking at, you know, how can we uh, potentially, um, you know, convince the society that that for shorter dins- distances, we might, um, we might prefer to cycle, walk, or, or you know, use other means of, of getting ourselves to, to different places. So yeah, a lot can be done mm-hmm. and should be done. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm ashamed to say that uh, here in Cambridge, we, the city had a proposal to impose congestion charging mm-hmm. on cars so that the revenue could be used to improve public transport, specifically buses. And there was so much opposition that I think they've shelved it. So I think there's still a lot, long way to go, as you say, politically, for people to accept that we need to invest in mobility as a service almost. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I could point you to one initiative. So, so one of the forums initiative, Global uh, New Mobility Coalition, they've been doing some really interesting work on how to, you know, um, introduce uh, new, new mobility in, in cities across the world in different regions using different means uh, of how to do that, be it from the congestion charges, but then also looking at, you know, the uh, availability, uh, reliability, accessibility of different transportation modes uh, to, to um, you know, the citizens. Yeah. So Saswati talks about various mobility behavioral patterns across mm-hmm. the world. So maybe different services depending on the kinds of uh, the terrain or how people uh, use uh, transportation right and andrew says that estimates show that cars are unused most of the time so we only actually need to use 
want maybe 5% of all cars. So how do we balance that demand and supply, right? Uh, Lin Li has a question, which is EVs are booming in China. Mm -hmm. And there are already some Chinese giants have emerged. Yeah. Will you, do you see that this is going to grow like the way the, the smartphone industry did? What's the opportunity for a business to really gain uh, that kind of dominate, dominance in a new EV market? Okay. Uh, I would say, yes, there is already a, a number of, of giants, I guess, that have emerged within the industry. So, so um, for sure, a lot already happening there. And um, I would say that there is still a lot of, uh, you know, smaller startups, etc., that are entering um, entering the stage with quite interesting, innovative solutions. So, uh, from their perspective, I would say uh, there's been, uh, you know, having interesting technology that addresses the needs of particular OEMs when it comes to their take up uh, of of EV batteries and, and and basically transitioning to to better, more efficient production uh, of those uh, has been the ones that have been mostly successful at the moment. So, uh, you know, uh, techno developing technologies that are allowing uh, existing large players to enter uh, the market or not even enter the market, but, but, but you know, take, take up the bigger share of the market. Uh, that's, that's where we've seen uh, quite a bit of success. So... Mm. Mm. I remember um, Simon, I know, the Professor Galloway, Scott Galloway of Wharton, he mm -hmm. has a podcast and he was talking about how Apple is like a two trillion, almost three trillion company. Why mm -hmm. are they going to VR headsets? They should really go and make an Apple car. Is it really easy for a new entrant to move in to, the, to build an EV the same way like Tesla did, for example? Um, I wouldn't say it is easy because, as we've mentioned, you know, there's already happening a, a lot already happening in this space. But there is a lot more space of how things can be done better and and more efficiently, and you know, having the higher higher resource recovery rates, etc. And I think a lot of the players, the new entrants to the market, have been capitalizing on so. Uh, yeah, two things is uh, for sure developing the uh, better methods, better technologies, um, and then uh, looking to collaborate with the large existing players that perhaps maybe not have been slow to enter the transition, but but perhaps uh, at the moment could, could use that additional boost to really uh, keep up with the pace of the EV transition worldwide. Mm. And we'll have the last question from Aaron. It's a quite a philosophical question, I get, you know, in a way, mm -hmm. which is, uh, Aaron says, he heating, right, mm -hmm. makes up a huge percentage of emissions, uh, global energy use. Mm -hmm. Why do we focus on EVs when we should, should we not focus more energy on how to reduce the emissions from uh, heating? Um, yeah, absolutely. So I wouldn't say they're mutually exclusive in a way. So obviously there's work being done in, in both spaces. 
Um, and in fact, there, there is some overlap in a way that, you know, I've already mentioned, you know, what are the different means of using those EV batteries at, at the end of life? Can they be used as the kind of stationary storage, etc.? And, you know, in a way that if there are on-grid solutions, they could help us, you know, uh, retain some of the energy produced during these spikes and, and so use them, for instance, for heating um, and so on uh, later on. And so I think there are ways to connect the two topics and the investments are definitely being made in, in both areas. Thank you so much, Natalia. Um, you've definitely given us a lot of thought food for thought before we hand over cash for that sparkling new EV, SUV or Cybertruck. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And the balance sheet will be back next week. We'll look at another aspect of sustainability. Uh, Amelia Tan, Head of Responsible Business Investing at LG Investment Management. We'll talk about ESG investing. How do asset management firms use the huge financial firepower to influence companies to do to change. And is that a good or a bad thing? So join us on the 22nd of September, 12.45 p.m. UK time to find out. Till then, thank you so much. Stay safe. See you next time. 